Okay, folks, uh, this morning uh, we begin uh, a new series uh, in the book of Ecclesiastes that will uh, carry us through, uh, at least through the, the summer months. And uh, hopefully you've had, uh, mentioned this, uh, uh, that we were headed this direction uh, a number of weeks ago. Hopefully you've had time to uh, sort of uh, get uh, Ecclesiastes uh, under your belt, so to speak. Uh, maybe you've had some time to, uh, to read through this. If not, I encourage you to do that as we, as we study uh, week to week. Uh, it's one of the other advantages of teaching verse by verse in Scripture is you, you know where we're headed. So it just gives you an opportunity to prepare your own uh, heart and mind and to, uh, to uh, bring questions you have about, about what we're talking about. Uh, so we, we look forward to this, this time together. Uh, I, in, in the past um, a couple of studies we've done, uh, we did some short books. We've done Nahum, we've done Jonah, we did Titus, and it was nice to be able to read through those books from beginning to end to sort of launch our study just to kind of get our minds around the whole text. Uh, we won't <laughs> be able to do that uh, this morning because of the length of this particular book, but I thought we would just begin because we're only going to really look in detail at verse 1. Uh, today, we'll be moving at a much uh, quicker pace through this study than we have with some of the other uh, studies we've done in the last, uh, uh, in the more recent years. Uh, we'll be hopefully doing something like six to ten verses a week, uh, but we'll just be honing in on the first verse uh, of chapter one today and then talking about some of the, uh, uh, some of the generalities, sort of the, the background, I think, that will help, help frame this for us. But I thought it would be helpful for us just to read at least a, a portion uh, more than just verse 1. So let's just uh, re- begin in verse 1, and we'll read down through uh, verse 11, uh, which, Lord willing, I think we'll be able to, uh, to get through uh, next, uh, next Sunday. So verse 1, chapter 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What advantage does man have in all his work which he does under the sun. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Also the sun rises and the sun sets, and hastening to its place it rises there again, blowing toward the south, then turning toward the north. The wind continues swirling along, and on its circular courses the wind returns. All the rivers flow into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place where the rivers flow, there they flow again. All things are wearisome, Man is not able to tell it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor is the ear filled with hearing. That which has been is that which will be, and that which has been done is that which will be done. So there is nothing new under the sun. Is there any anything of of which one might say, see this, it is new? Already it has existed for ages which were before us. There is no remembrance of earlier things and also of the latter things which will occur. There will be for them no remembrance among those who will come the later still. So today, again, just all I hope to accomplish is to just lay some groundwork for us for our study together to sort of introduce this book to give you some basic general information that I think will set the stage for us as we move uh, through this material week by week and, and verse by verse. So if you're just taking notes, I'm just going to kind of give you some different things. Uh, again, just some of these, uh, I think, uh, helpful uh, background information that we'll be making reference to as we go along. But 
Uh, I think it's just helpful at the very beginning to kind of lay these things out. Uh, some of you may be more familiar with Ecclesiastes than others, so uh, if you don't have uh, uh, much of a uh, much familiarity with this book, I think this will be will be helpful and encouraging to you. So first of all, just what is the title? Uh, what about the title of Ecclesiastes? It's uh, the English title there in your in your Bibles. Ecclesiastes comes from the Greek uh, and Latin translations of the book. Uh, the Septuagint, which was uh, simply it's a, it's a Greek uh, translation of the Jewish uh, scriptures, Jewish Old Testament. It was written in about the third century BC. Uh, it used this Greek translation of the Old Testament used this Greek term Ecclesiastes for its title. Uh, it, it essentially means preacher. Uh, it, and it comes from the, the, the word in Greek, ekklesia, which some of you are familiar with, which, means, which simply means assembly or to, to uh, the congregation or a gathering. So both, both the Greek and the Latin versions derive their, their titles uh, from the Hebrew title in, in the Hebrew scriptures, koheleth. How, how many of you actually have that, do any of you actually have that in your translation where it actually says Koheleth and it doesn't say preacher? Okay, it's actually off to the side there. Um, the, the, this Hebrew term Koheleth is, is apparently referred to in the Old Testament as sort of the, the preacher's office. Uh, it, it actually became a, a term that was used to designate the, the preacher himself. And it, too, derives from a word in the Old Testament, which, which simply means to convene an assembly. So uh, Ecclesiastes, the preacher, uh, it, it's a fitting uh, title for the book because uh, the author of this particular book refers to himself as this in a number of passages. You see this three, three times toward the beginning of the letter. You'll notice it there in chapter 1, verse 1, the preacher. Uh, in fact, who, anybody have anything other than the preacher? In your, the teacher, the preacher, what else? Anybody else? Any other designation for that? Okay, the, the preacher, you'll see it in verse 1, you'll see it in verse 2, as well as verse 12. Uh, we find it three times at the end of the book in chapter 12, verses 8, 9, and 10, and then we find it once in the, in the middle of the book in chapter 7, uh, verse 27. So the title of the book is essentially, it's, it's a title of declaration. It's, it's the preacher. It's, it's the one who gathers and addresses the assembly. It's, uh, some might even say it's the gatherer of wisdom. So it's not only uh, this, it's sort of a, a dual meaning of it's gathering an assembly to, to, to instruct them, to teach them, but it's also a gathering of wisdom, which we'll see. Uh, that's essentially what this, this book is all about. Uh, the public teacher. We know that this preacher teaches because in chapter 12, verse 9, it explicitly tells us that, that he did that. Some have even translated it as the, the arguer, <laughs> that he's arguing for uh, certain things in sort of a, a polemic type, type of way. Uh, along with Ruth, uh, the, there's a, a section of the Old Testament, uh, the Hebrew Old Testament referred to as the five scrolls. Uh, you have the book of Ruth, you have the Song of Songs, uh, Song of Songs, Lamentations, Esther, and Ecclesiastes. Uh, they're all a part of that particular collection. Uh, later, after this was written and the Old Testament was, was compiled, the, the Jewish rabbis would read these particular books in, in the synagogue on five different occasions uh, during the year, Ecclesiastes uh, being read during the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. 
which was one of the three uh, pilgrimage festivals in which the Israelites would uh, make their annual pilgrimage to, to Jerusalem. So that's, that's, that's where we get the title. It's essentially the preacher, and again, you might, some of your translations might say uh, the teacher, uh, and, and not really a, a teacher. If you, think, if you have teacher, don't think teacher in a classroom, think pastor. Think, think of a, a, a much larger assembly or congregation uh, being addressed, and, and, and clearly from more of a, a pastoral perspective, a pastor's heart. Uh, what about the author? Uh, well, we have a significant clue for us here in chapter 1, verse 1, the very first verse of the book, says the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, uh, a verse that I believe most naturally points to, to King Solomon. Uh, if you think about it, there were only four, four kings who ruled over Israel uh, as opposed to Judah. So this, in other words, this was a time to be king over Israel and to be king over Israel in Jerusalem, then you had to be a king before the divided kingdom, before the kingdom was divided. So there's really only four kings in Israel's history that fit that description. You have Saul, the first king. You have David, his son, Solomon, and then Rehoboam, uh, Solomon's uh, uh, son. So Solomon just makes, just makes the most sense of those, of those four. Uh, we would rule out Saul and David because of the description here that this particular uh, preacher is a son, son of David. So Solomon just makes the, makes the most sense. And for a number of other reasons, uh, we, of course, these titles in verse 1, we also have a, a similar designation down in verse 12. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in uh, Jerusalem. Uh, we know for a fact that, that Solomon was a preacher of, of sorts, a teacher, an instructor, uh, if you will, uh, the one who addressed the assembly of Israel. Uh, we actually have uh, records of that in, in, in the scriptures of Solomon addressing the people. Uh, we know that he was one of the sons of David, and we know that he was king in Jerusalem. So those, those titles make sense uh, if you just, just take verse 1 as it is. Uh, then we have in chapter 12, verse 9, at the end of the book, the, t- the text says that the preacher, or the ko- koheleth in, in the Hebrew, was the author of many proverbs, uh, which we know to be true of Solomon. We know that Solomon wrote a number of proverbs. We... we uh, we see that over in Proverbs chapter 1, uh, where Proverbs 1, uh, chapter 1, verse 1 explicitly tells us that Solomon wrote uh, those Proverbs. Uh, then we have, of course, this, uh, uh, we, we have this, this particular text, chapter 12, verse 9 in Ecclesiastes. It says, in addition to being a wise man, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, and he pondered and searched out and arranged many Proverbs. Uh, we take that particular verse in Ecclesiastes, we put it with Proverbs 1.1 1, 1, uh, with a statement about Solomon writing numerous Proverbs. And then we also have a statement over in 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 32, speaking of Solomon, where it says there that Solomon wrote at least 3,000 of them. So he wrote at least 3,000 different Proverbs. So we have that to sort of fill in to say, okay, that's, that makes sense. That fits, it fits Solomon. Uh, then we have some, some interesting similarities between passages in Ecclesiastes and Proverbs. So you could go to uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 10 and verses 8, 9, 12, 13, and 18. And what you would see is that you could find corresponding statements in the book of Proverbs, very similar statements in the book of Proverbs that we know were recorded by Solomon. 
So you have this sort of carry, this sort of the bleed over, carry over into, into the book of Ecclesiastes. So we have these titles in verse 1. We have this statement at the end of the book in chapter 12 uh, regarding the number of Proverbs, and we have statements in other places of Scripture that refer to Solomon as a writer, uh, and, and not only one who wrote Proverbs, but who organized them and arranged them. Uh, we have similar, similarities between statements in Ecclesiastes and the book of Proverbs itself. And then finally, I, I would say we have a number of details about this preacher, whoever he is. We have a number of details about him that, that support the idea that Solomon is the author of this book. Uh, uh, for instance, in chapter 1, verse 6, there's a reference in, in, that, in that particular verse to this man who has really unrivaled wisdom. Uh, great wisdom. Uh, in chapter 2, verse 3, there's a reference to this, this author's opportunities to carry out pretty much any kind of carnal desire he wanted to. <laughs> In other words, this guy had the ability to carry out uh, and to enjoy whatever carnal pleasures that he set, set his mind and heart to. Uh, in chapter 2, verses 4 through verse 6, there's a reference to his extensive, whoever this author is, his extensive building activities. Uh, this guy was heavily involved in, in building and in construction and in expansion. Uh, we have a reference in chapter 2, verse 7, to this large entourage of servants. And then in chapter 2, verse 8, a reference to his unequaled wealth. So when you just look at all of that, I mean, that massive expansion, that wealth, that wisdom, and the ability to pretty much uh, set your mind on something and say, I want that. Uh, and, and then be able to actually carry it out and to do it, uh, you can narrow this down to, I think, Solomon because no, no other descendant of David measures, really measures up to these kinds, these kinds of qualifications but Solomon himself. Uh, no, no other king in all of Israel fit, fits these characteristics or these factors of wisdom and accomplishments and works and riches and wealth and influence and words better than better than Solomon. So Solomon wasn't just a wise man. Uh, he was a wise man, but he was also a, a statesman. He was a politician. He was a scientist. He was a horticulturist. Uh, he was an author, a poet, an agriculturist, a teacher, an architect, a musician. I mean, it's amazing the, the, the level of understanding that this man had, which just makes him a fitting author for this kind of book, to be able to reflect on the meaning of life and what life is all about, and a lot of that from his own uh, personal experience. And we'll look at all those things in, in great detail in the weeks to come. So this has been the traditional view. It's accepted by, uh, the Jewish, uh, by Jewish and Christian scholars alike that Solomon wrote this book in its entirety. Uh, I say in its entirety because you have to weed through. Uh, when you go to the commentaries on, on this book, they're all over the place. You have some that believe there's one author, some that believe there's two authors, some that believe there's three authors, and some that believe there's four authors. <laughs> so uh, you have some, some pretty uh, diverse views on, on the author. Um, honestly, as I, as I read some of these things, I, I just think, you know, why, why do they have to try to make this so difficult and so complicated? Uh, the problem is that a lot of Bible students go to the Scriptures, uh, again, not, not taking the Scriptures at face value and really looking for the mysterious things, uh, trying to make it difficult, uh, assuming that God cannot uh, carry out the work of inspiration. 
through just one man. And so you have redactors. You have people that wrote the original document. You have people that came along later and added parts and uh, to those original documents. And then the guy that, you know, 200, 300 years later finally came around and read this document and thought that the document was a little unbalanced. And so he decided to add a conclusion on the end of the document to make the document sound a little bit more balanced. So it sounds like something that, like God would do, right, with the scriptures. Yeah. Is he, would, he would give us something that's confusing and hard to understand and that's out of balance, and then he would send other people along to basically correct and edit that original, original version so that we would have something that's clear and that's biblically balanced. But unfortunately, that's, that's, where, that's where scholars go. That's where... That's where most uh, theologians go, unfortunately. Um, Shane even, even ran into this in, in uh, his own studies in, in Romans and 1 Corinthians. It's any time you start into a new series and you start to read what's out there just to get your, your mind again, just sort of wrap your mind around uh, you know, what's going on in the theological scholarly circles, that's what you have to weed through, unfortunately. So this has been the traditional views, uh, Solomon as the author, uh, really until the rise of 19th century criticism. Uh, that was the generally accepted view by both the synagogue and, and the church. Um, so that would place, if we accept that, if we accept uh, Solomon as the author of Ecclesiastes, that would place the writing of this book around the 10th century uh, B.C., which, again, most scholars would not agree with. Uh, they would not embrace uh, the, the authorship of Solomon um, because they believe that this book is written com and composed much later. Uh, the, some would say that it was uh, composed or written after the ba Babylonian exile, uh, after the, the Jewish people returned back to their, to their homeland from captivity, sometime during or after the 5th century uh, B.C. Uh, some might even say as, as late as the 2nd century B.C., and, and just for, I don't want to get bogged down in this, but I do think it's helpful for you guys just to have an idea of why. I mean, why, why, why do people go this direction? Um, because you're going to hear these kinds of things. Uh, you hear it with, with this book. I mean, there's some people that would just as soon throw Ecclesiastes out of the Bible. I mean, there's a lot of, uh, uh, of, of people that study Scripture, and then when they get to the book of Ecclesiastes, they so misunderstand the purpose of the book that they don't even think it's it's fitting for it to, to even be a part of the Old Testament canon. Um, and then you have these others that just say, no, it's not Solomon, it's, it's someone else. Uh, it's someone else, many of them will say it's someone else who put themselves in the shoes of Solomon fictitiously. It was, it was a fictitious autobiography in order to teach the nation of Israel certain things. And so they just sort of, I'm going to put myself in the shoes of Solomon and I'm going to write as if I am him. And then at some point, I'm going to abandon that autobiographical part of the book, and then I'm just going to add onto the end these sayings and these make these conclusions. Uh, some of the reasons for that uh, is the, the language itself. Um, uh, the fact that the language of this particular book is markedly different from that of other 10th century uh, Hebrew texts, uh, which have been preserved in the Bible. Uh, for that matter, it's, it's different from really all other books in the Old Testament of whatever age, uh, with the partial exception of the Song of Songs. Uh, they also point to what we call uh, uh, Ara Aramaisms, or these are, these are like examples of, uh, of Aramaic language, of that language's influence on, on, he on the Hebrew language. And so they look for 
these expressions and they say, well, if, if there's an Aramaic influence on this text and we see that in the way that the Hebrew is used and we don't believe that there was an Aramaic influence during the time of Solomon, then we have to conclude that Solomon wasn't the author because there's no way that Solomon could have written that and had that influence because that influence wasn't around yet. And so that's, that's they look for those kinds of things uh, in, in as far as the l- linguistic uh, data is, is concerned. Uh, the, the obvious obvious inference is that Ecclesiastes comes from a time when the Jews made very large use of Aramaic, which presumably is not the case until after uh, after the Babylonian exile. Uh, we would admit that linguistically the book is very unique. Um, uh, there's no question that its language has a, a lot of striking uh, peculiarities. That's a hard word to say. Peculiarities. Um, that's like a perspicuity. Thank you very much. Uh, those. I know. That's I've, 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 messed, I, I, I've gotten people off on that. I pronounced it enough times wrong that I think people just adopted the wrong, uh, pronoun- the wrong pronunciation. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, what is important, what, what I think is important to note is that neither a, a Phoenician background nor an Aramaic background would necessarily uh, preclude Solomon from being the author, especially in light of the political. If you look at what Solomon accomplished in his lifetime with all of the political ties and all of the commercial ties with both the Phoenician-speaking and the Aramean peoples of the, of, 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 of the Syrian areas, during Solomon's reign, it makes total sense that Solomon would have adapted some of that terminology. In fact, I look at it this way. If you think of William Shakespeare, you think of some of these, these guys, some of these great these poets and writers, anybody that writes uh, at that level is going to use phrases and terms that the average person is not necessarily familiar with. I mean, sometimes Spurgeon. I mean, I read Spurgeon, and I have to get my dictionary out. You know, it's like, what is that word that he's using? And we find that. Uh, it, it makes sense to me that if you're going to, that w- with, with the purpose of Ecclesiastes and the richness and the depth of what Ecclesiastes has to communicate, uh, it makes total sense that Solomon would have been adapting a very broad range of, uh, a very broad uh, vocabulary, uh, if you will. In fact, some have said it could even be because of his influence. He was expecting that the book of Ecclesiastes would go beyond the borders of Israel. So he wanted to write in a way that the pagan outside of the nation of Israel, because he had these ties and connections, uh, that he wanted these writings to go beyond Palestine and almost serve an evangelistic purpose to to the nations. Uh, The reality is that that if you look at all the linguistic data, you look at the vocabulary and you look at the syntax and the style and form and all that, what you're forced to conclude is that the text of Ecclesiastes fits into no known period in the history of the Hebrew language. So there's really no foundation for dating the book upon those grounds, upon linguistic grounds. The language of Ecclesiastes is no more dissimilar to 10th century Hebrew than it is to 5th century Hebrew or to 2nd century B.C. Hebrew. So it seems that Ecclesiastes is, is written in a very particular style uh, conventional for its own own purposes and its own its own genre. Uh, one of the other main objections to Solomon being the author of the, of the book is that the author seems to speak at least occasionally 
from the standpoint of a third party. So in some cases, you have this sort of autobiographical where Solomon is, is speaking about his own experience, and then at other times, he says, the preacher. Um, and it's, you know, just on that alone, some people will say, well, then there has to be another author with Solomon. Even if we can see this author, that Solomon wrote part of this, we have to at least uh, agree that there are multiple authors or there's an original author and then there's a redactor that comes along uh, uh, later. Uh, that, but that's, that is com- more common than you would think uh, in ancient literature. I mean, it was n- it's not uncommon for that, for that to happen, and, and we have examples of that in other, other forms of in other l- literature from this particular time period. Um, and in some places, one of the other sort of things that they, they raise, concerns they raise, is that there is at times, and we'll see this as we go through the book, there's at times a, a somewhat of a, dis, a display of a critical attitude towards uh, leadership, uh, towards kings specifically. And so some people would say, well, it can't be Solomon. Why would Solomon do that? I mean, why would Solomon as a king criticize kings? And I'm just saying, man, look at the guy's life. Uh, you don't think that Solomon ever saw kings abusing their power? Uh, you don't think Solomon himself didn't recognize at the end of his own life that he had himself abused his power and his influence and the authority that God had given to him. So when, you know, we see that sort of critical tone towards kings, you know, I just think it's, that's, that's fairly easy to understand if we simply realize that Solomon was not writing some sort of uh, pro-government uh, propaganda uh, he was talking about life as it's actually lived, and he saw the abuses uh, in his own life of those things and certainly in the lives of, of others. So he wasn't really writing from that perspective anyway. Uh, he, and even in Proverbs, what's interesting is we, we know we, nobody would disagree, say, oh, well, we agree that Solomon is the writer of Proverbs, and yet Proverbs has some things to say about kings too, and they're not always positive. So, so if we're just going to chuck Solomon out as the author simply because he says some negative statements about kings uh, or himself, then we'd have to throw out some of the Proverbs as well, and you don't really see, see people going down that particular path. So he's not really writing from that standpoint. He's really writing more from the standpoint of, a, of, an, of an observer of political and social life. Now, what are some of the ob- general observations that we can make about the life of Solomon? Uh, regarding his family and his background, uh, if you want to turn over to 1 Kings, First Kings at the beginning of that book, First Kings one. Again, we're not going to come back very often to to some of these passages, but I think they're important because it it gives us the backdrop. It it, it, it helps us, I think, in the end to know why Solomon draws the conclusions that he draws, uh, to understand what was going on in his own life and the things that he had experienced. So just regarding his own, his own family and his family background, we, we know that Solomon was the tenth son uh, of King David, and he was the second son of Bathsheba. Second uh, Samuel chapter 3 tells us that six of Solomon's brothers were born in uh, Hebron and that each of them had a different mother. Okay, so... Um, Immediately, okay, we can just assume there was some family conflict, okay? You, you think that you have difficulties maybe at Thanksgiving when you get together with some of your 
your, your, your family members, you know, that crazy uncle or whatever it is, uh, you get nervous about those things. Well, imagine going to a Thanksgiving dinner like this where you've got multiple moms and half-brothers and half-sisters. It's a pretty, pretty chaotic uh, family life. Uh, we, we know that David, Solomon's father, had a lot of problems, a lot of difficulties that, that eventually took their toll on David's, David's leadership. Uh, many of these problems stemmed from earlier struggles in David's life, uh, many of them uh, dealing with or surrounding David's uh, issues or his problems with uh, self-control and his, uh, his lust, his, his uh, struggles with the opposite sex. Uh, we do know that David was a man after God's own heart, but we also know other things about David. I mean, we have that sort of characteristic statement of David, and yet we know of many of David's uh, failures in life. Uh, David was evidently not a very good father. Um, and time would tell that Solomon did not really learn a lot from his father's mistakes, even though he witnessed uh, a variety of things. I mean, he witnessed the, uh, those consequences uh, in his father's life for David's uh, sinful decisions, some of those. Uh, he witnessed the violent deaths of many of his half-brothers. He witnessed the rape uh, of his half-sister. So uh, he experienced a lot. He saw a lot. Just from an observation standpoint, Solomon, growing up in the royal palace, growing up in that environment, certainly was exposed to a lot of different things. Uh, then near the, the end of David's life, uh, we read in First Chronicles 22 and in First Kings, the first couple of chapters, about... Solomon's rise to the throne. Uh, we learn that God had chosen Solomon to succeed his father. Uh, and David publicly informed the nation in 1 Chronicles 28 uh, and in chapter 29 that Solomon would be their next king, which clearly infuriated uh, the, the older half-brothers, Solomon's older half-brothers. Uh, one of them, uh, Adonijah, was, this was David's fourth son, uh, we read about this in, in 1 Kings chapters 1 and 2 that Adonijah went to, he had a plot uh, via Bathsheba that he was going to try to usurp the throne and uh, Solomon had him murdered. You know, so again, these are not, I mean, these are some pretty, pretty uh, ex- extreme types of, of uh, circumstances, not the things you experience uh, just everyday run-of-the-mill stuff. Then near, um, uh, so, so Solomon had Adonijah mur- murdered. He was considered to be, we might call, a ruler of iron, uh, the ruler of iron. He made a lot of hasty judgments in his life and some that turned out to be uh, not so good decisions. So Solomon becomes king, and most of what we see in the first nine chapters of First Kings is what we might refer to or call as a portrait of a wise king. Uh, a portrait of a wise king. We see in chapter 2, in the first four verses of chapter 2 of 1 Kings, that David charges his son to follow the Lord. Um, In verse 6 and verse 9 of that chapter, uh, we see that David even recognized his son's wisdom even before God uh, gave Solomon an additional measure of wisdom. So even before God, or even before Solomon uh, requested uh, wisdom or asked for wisdom to lead, 
David's already seeing that in his son. He's, he's seeing and he's noticing that, that wisdom. And then we read in 1 Kings chapter 3, we'll just sort of pick up here in verse 5, in Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream at night and said, God said, ask what you wish me to give you. And then Solomon said, you have shown great loving kindness to your servant David, my father, according as he walked before you in truth and righteousness and uprightness of heart toward you. And you have reserved for him this great loving kindness that you have given him, uh, that you have given him a son to sit on his throne as it is to this, as it is this day. Now, O Lord, my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father, David, Yet I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. Your servant is in the midst of your people, which you've chosen, a great people who are too many to be numbered or counted. So give your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, to discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? And it was pleasing in the sight of the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing. And God said to him, Because you have asked this thing and have not asked for yourself long life, nor have asked, uh, asked riches for yourself, nor have you asked for the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself discernment to understand justice. Verse 12, Behold, I have done according to your words. Behold, I have given you a wise and discerning heart, so that there has been no one like you before you, nor shall one like you arise after you. I have also given you what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that there will not be any among the kings like you all your days. If you walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and commandments as your father David walked, then I will prolong your days. And then Solomon awoke, and behold, it was a dream. And he, he came to Jerusalem and stood before the, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and offered burnt offerings and made peace offerings and made a feast for all of his servants. So Solomon gets this opportunity to ask, uh, ask something of the Lord. And Solomon asked for wisdom. Wisdom for the purpose of providing leadership for God's people. And he received it. He received abundantly a wise and an understanding heart from the Lord. And then his, his wisdom was immediately put, put to the test when you'll notice there uh, in, in chapter 3 beginning in verse 16 that these two women, these two women are really two harlots come come to Solomon with this situation. They have a dead newborn son and a living newborn son, and both of these ladies are claiming that the, the living child was, was theirs. And what we see in that passage is, is the wisdom of Solomon on display. Um, we see Solomon judging wisely. So much so that verse 28, 1 Kings 3 says this, when all Israel heard of the judgment which the king had handed down, they feared the king. For they saw that the wisdom of God was in him to administer justice. So Solomon gained renown. He, he, he gained renown for being exceedingly wise by rendering these kinds of insightful decisions. Uh, he had a, a reputation that attracted all the kings of the earth to his courts. Chapter 4, verse 29 says, Now God gave Solomon wisdom and very great discernment and breadth of mind like the sand that is on the seashore. Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the sons of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. Verse 32, he also spoke 3,000 proverbs. There's our, we referenced that earlier. His songs were 1,005. He spoke of trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon even to the hyssop that grows on the wall. He spoke also of animals and birds and creeping things and fish. 
men came, verse 34, from all peoples to hear the wisdom of Solomon from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. Not only did Solomon have wisdom, uh, he had tremendous wealth and power. You could go back to verse 20 of chapter 4. Judah and and Israel were as numerous as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. Uh, They were eating and drinking and rejoicing. Now Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the river to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. Verse 24, for he had dominion over everything west of the river. Uh, All the kings west of the river had peace on all sides around about him. Verse 25, so Judah and Israel lived in safety. Every man under his vine and his fig tree from Dan even to Beersheba all the days of Solomon. Solomon's got wisdom. Solomon's got wealth. Solomon has power. Solomon has an army. Solomon's got gold. We, I mean, you, you, we'll read over in First, uh, First Kings chapter ten. He had forty-one tons of pure gold, and it wasn't just Solomon that was enjoying this prosperity. It was the nation of Israel. Uh, God was blessing the nation. The nation of Israel was was never more wealthier. It was never more unified. Never more filled with a sense of purpose. And in First Kings chapter eight. We, we find that Solomon did fulfill his charge to build the temple. Uh, he did complete the temples he was charged to do. And then we get to chapter 9. And in 1 Kings chapter 9, we begin to get a hint about Solomon's downfall. In verse 1 of 1 Kings 9, it says, Now it came about when Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord and the king's house, And all that Solomon desired to do, that the Lord appeared to Solomon a second time as he had appeared to him at Gibeon. And the Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer and your supplication which you have made before me. I have consecrated this house which you have built by putting my name there forever. And my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. As for you, if you will walk before me as your father David walked in integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you and will keep my statutes and my ordinances... Then I will establish the throne of your kingdom over Israel forever, just as I promised to your father David, saying, You shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. But if you or your sons indeed turn away from following me, and do not keep my commandments and my statutes, which I have set before you, and go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land which I have given them, and the house which I have consecrated for my name. I will cast out of my sight, So Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all peoples. And this house will become a heap of ruins. Everyone who passes by will be astonished and hiss and say, Why has the Lord done this to this land and to this house? And they will say, Because they forsook the Lord their God, who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and adopted other gods and worshipped them and served them. Therefore the Lord has brought all of this adversity on them. So God explicitly warns Solomon. Unfortunately, Solomon does not heed the warning. And, and we, so, so we see this sort of uh, transition, if you, if you will, from the first nine chapters of 1 Kings, sort of this portrait of a, of a wise king to this portrait of a foolish king. Beginning in chapter 9, really coming... Uh, sort of in th- 3D technicolor in chapter 11. 
verse 1, Now King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the sons of Israel, You shall not associate with them, nor shall they associate with you, for they will surely turn your heart away after their gods. Solomon held fast to these in love. He had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned his heart away. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the detestable idol of the Ammonites. Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not follow the Lord fully as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable idol of Moab, on the mountain which is east of Jerusalem, and for Molech, the detestable idol of the sons of Ammon. Thus also he did for all his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. Now the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice, and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods, but he did not observe what the Lord had commanded. So the Lord said to Solomon, Because you've done this, and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes which I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Nevertheless, I will not do it in your days for the sake of your father David, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. And then the Lord raised up an adversary to Solomon. So Solomon goes from being this wise king to this foolish king. And the question is, why did he do it? Why did he do it? Of course, we have indications of, of, of the reasons why he did it in, in these particular texts in 1 Kings, but we also have an answer, I think, to that question in the book of Ecclesiastes. And, and what Ecclesiastes tells us is that instead of using God's wisdom, instead of using his wisdom to discern truth from error and to lead the people of Israel to live righteously, Solomon used it to test or to discern pleasure for himself. <laughs> so essentially, instead of using this, the, all of this vast knowledge that he had to be a blessing to the people and to lead the people in the ways of God, what he did is he took his power and his influence and his intellect, and he thought, okay, how can I use that to get what I sinfully, sensually, selfishly, arrogantly want? So he misused the gift that God had given to him. He had it all. He, he, he had it all at one point, but, but he lost his bearings. He drifted in his heart. He began to love and to fear the wrong things. And we need to learn from that example. We need to learn where it's helpful, I think, for us to see where Solomon starts and then where he goes wrong and then where that ends up taking him. When we get later into chapter 1 of Ecclesiastes into chapter 2, it's, it's, it's amazing what Solomon has to say about this, these experiences in his life. He essentially describes the experiences of, of, the, of life in, in this way. When he was using all these gifts that God had given to him for his own desires and his own pleasures, he essentially refers to them as, as cul-de-sacs. 
as dead end streets. He, he thinks he's going somewhere, but then he ends up in this dead end. And, and things don't turn out the way that he hopes that they will turn out. So we can learn a lot from him. Where he starts, where he goes wrong, where he ends up, and then where he lands in the end. Because my view of Ecclesiastes is we don't have a in Scripture a, a historical account or a record of Solomon's repentance. What I think Ecclesiastes is, it's his, it's his, it's his statement of repentance. I think Solomon, the, the book of Ecclesiastes is written at a time in Solomon's life where he's on the backside of these experiences and he is wanting to gather the assembly of Israel to teach them in his final days about the mistakes that he had made, particularly his own son, right? Because his own son is going to, to, to take his place and in the same way that David should have been teaching his son, right, about those things that were important, and in the same way that, 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 that Solomon in Proverbs himself in the first 10 chapters, what does he say? Son, listen, pay attention. Pay attention to the words of your father. Take heed to the words of your mother. I think you have what Ecclesiastes is for us is it's a, it is a um, uh, sort of a, a final word from Solomon about life. And nobody could speak to these issues like he could. Because nobody has been as wise other than the, Jesus Christ himself. He's the wisest man that ever lived. No one's had that kind of long-lasting influence and, 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 and the opportunity to experience the, the, the numerous, the variety of things that Solomon experienced. And nobody was more empty. <laughs> when it was all said and done, looking back on all that and seeing the vanity of that and seeing the transitory momentary nature of life that he could look back and say I remember the days of Song of Songs when I was a young man I can remember the days of I would say middle age when I wrote Proverbs and now I'm writing Ecclesiastes and this is that look back and this is the evidence I think that we have that Solomon was a true believer that Solomon clearly strayed from the Lord uh, there's, there's, there's no question in my mind that Solomon's a true believer. There's just too many statements in Scripture that I, the descriptives about Solomon that I just don't think you would, that would be said of a person that was, a, was an unbeliever. But a man who strayed and then looks back over that life, that life of good, <laughs> that life of wisdom, but then how he himself rejected in many ways his own wisdom. The very wisdom that he gave to us in Proverbs at times in his life, he, he spurned and walked away from. And Ecclesiastes says, learn from me. Because you can learn by observation or you can learn by experience. Solomon did both. He observed a lot of things, but he experienced a lot of things. But we don't necessarily need to experience these things to learn them and to avoid the mistakes that Solomon made. We can learn a lot from his experiences and, and learn from, from observation. So... So we'll stop there for now. We'll come back and we'll talk about uh, next, next week uh, some of the, the major themes of the book, uh, the purpose of the book, uh, maybe get into those first uh, few verses of, of, uh, of chapter 1. Again, I encourage you to just begin to meditate on, the, on this, this, uh, uh, this particular uh, book as we study through it. Try to maybe read through it at least once or twice this week if possible. And um, we'll come back and we'll talk about 
The purpose of the book, because a lot of people look at Ecclesiastes as a very pessimistic book, um, again, so negative and so pessimistic that it shouldn't even be included in Scripture, and they get that in part because of the way the book starts out. <laughs> Verse 2, vanity, <laughs> meaninglessness. Starts that way, ends that way in chapter 12, and it's like, well, man, if, that's, if everything is meaningless, then what, why is this book even here? Uh, so our definition of what that term vanity or meaninglessness, what that means is going to influence the way we sort of interpret the book as we go along. And what we'll see is that that is not the dominant thing in the book. Meaninglessness and vanity is not the major theme of Ecclesiastes. In fact, the word good or the word translated better is found over a dozen times more than the word vanity. And the word God is in there. And the word pleasure and the word enjoyment and God's goodness, all these things are in Ecclesiastes. So it's not, not, a, not a, a negative book uh, in, in any way. Negative parts, but uh, a hope-filled message. So we look forward to, to picking that up next time. Okay, guys, thanks so much for your time.